Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Spring confirmation season is in full swing, and on this episode, Bishop gives us the highlights of his confirmation homily. And then it's on to current events, specifically the governor of Virginia's recent decision to end the death penalty there. Afterwards, Bishop talks about National Infertility Awareness Week and his recent trip to the Poor Handmaids of Jesus Christ Motherhouse in Donaldson, Indiana to bless a statue and plaza. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for taking time out of your schedule for us. You're welcome, Kyle. How was your Easter octave? It was delightful. Was it yeah. good? Wait. I love those eight days. Yeah. Yeah. I had a lot of confirmations and everything, but um, yeah, I love all the gospels for those eight days of Easter where we hear the different accounts of the different evangelists on the resurrection and appearances of the risen Christ. It's like that we celebrate the resurrection for eight days. You know, I talked about that at the confirmations. I said, isn't it great to be Catholic that we... We're an Easter people. And uh, so, but we're still in the Easter season now. I mean, it's 50 days of the Easter season. So that's right. But not quite the feast level. Right. It's not not as like every day of the octave is a solemnity. Right. You know, so you have the Gloria and and everything. So, and you have that double Alleluia at the end of Mass. That ends Divine Mercy Sunday. So Uh now it's more. Calm. Okay. Yeah. But still, we can have... Still joyful. A, a second dessert? Is that what you said? You can have a second dessert. Second dessert. That's okay, right. good. Yeah. <laughs> Did Just <you>? making sure. <laughs> I'll tell you, Easter Sunday, I, I had... Uh, I can't remember ever enjoying a chocolate... What was a chocolate bunny that someone gave me so much. And uh, I... Of course, I'm trying to watch my weight, but I just thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> was it was it a hollow bunny or was it filled? It was kind of it. It wasn't hollow, but it was thick. Okay, so there was a lot of chocolate. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so I just kind of rationalized that it is. You know, we're finished fasting, so I'm going to have right. a chocolate Easter bunny. Very good. Well, you mentioned confirmations, and we're going to talk a little bit about confirmation as. Kind of curious, how many confirmations do you do in a year? Do you have any idea? Oh, you know, I haven't added them up, but I would guess there's probably about 50. Huh. You know, I, well, I do 50... more in the spring than in the fall, okay. but I can't do them all in the spring. It's just impossible. So 50 different confirmations. How many people would that be that you confirm? A few thousand. I think, wow. I think probably diocesan-wide, maybe it's close to 3,000, I think. 3,000 a year. Yeah. So in 21, chrism. 21 years, you're doing... Oh, 60,000 um, confirmations. Yeah. I, I, you know, that would have been neat from the beginning. I should have kept a list of yeah. how many. I do have a list of all the priests and, and deacons I've ordained, though, so that's good sure. to keep tr- track of. Do you know how many that is? Not off the top. I, oh, yeah. could, I could check that out, though, because I have a file. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, do you have an opening prayer for us? Why don't we continue to pray the Regina Celi, this Marian Antiphon of Easter? All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Queen of heaven, rejoice. Hallelujah. The Son whom you merited to bear. Hallelujah. Has risen as he said. Hallelujah. Pray for us to God. Hallelujah. Rejoice and be glad, O Virgin Mary. Hallelujah. For the Lord has truly risen. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We should do that in Latin next time. Oh. 
Hallelujah is the same. Okay, You're good. okay, Kyle. I'm, I'm all for it then. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> as long as I, I don't have to mispronounce things. So confirmation season, we had a lot of ca- cancellations because of COVID. Are you caught up with Oh, yeah, I've been caught up. I did confirmations all through the summer and fall. So I that was last what was supposed to be last springs. Uh-huh. I did throughout the summer and early fall. And then I did the regular fall confirmations. You know, I had to, because of the social distancing, I had to add some at some churches that weren't big enough. So now in the spring, I'm pretty much, you know, we're back caught up. The only thing is we've, I've still had to add some because of numbers and, and social distancing, although we're, we've relaxed that to three feet. But still, it's, it's, you know, I'm confident I'll be able to do all of them. Good. Yeah. And are you still using cotton? Yes, although I was at a confirmation last week and, you know, the cotton kind of uses more chrism and they got so low that I had to turn back to the thumb or I wouldn't have had enough chrism for everybody. But I I think, you know, it's very minimal risk of of COVID via, you know, that kind of touch. But um, I would think that that'll only be an effect, you know, well, maybe it'll be effect all spring and then... We'll be back to using the thumb. Okay. Yeah. Any, uh, I know you don't want to give away too much of your homily probably because there's still confirmations to come, but can you give us any insights into what you're sharing with people this year? Yeah. I mean, it changes from confirmation mass to confirmation mass, depending on like during the Easter octave, the confirmations I celebrated, we had to use the readings of the octave, so we couldn't use the special confirmation readings. So my homily kind of shifted to talk a little bit about those um, the readings from the Acts of the Apostles, and as I mentioned, the different resurrection appearances of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then I would talk about confirmation, and usually a lot of those readings do mention the Holy Spirit. So it's sure. uh, so I meditate on them. And but prior to the Easter octave. And after the Easter Octave, now I'm back to the readings that I've chosen for confirmation. And so I've really been focused on a a reading that I've never really preached on at confirmations. It's Paul to the Romans, chapter five. And there's one sentence that is so beautiful. And I've been kind of using that as kind of the core of my confirmation homily this year. It's when when St. Paul says, hope does not disappoint Mm -hmm. because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that's just so beautiful, you know, the idea of how the Holy Spirit helps us never to despair, to always live with hope in Christ. So hope does not disappoint, you know, so we should never give up on hope or become discouraged, you know, because when we're close to God, when Jesus is our best friend, we always have hope. You know, and the Holy Spirit makes sure of this. So whatever happens in our life, whatever difficulties, challenges, sufferings, our hope in God will endure. The Holy Spirit helps us not to despair or give up. So so we have this inner confidence that God is with us, that he cares for us, that he loves us. And then, of course, that gives us peace. That gives us joy. And those are fruits of the Holy Spirit, peace mm-hmm. and joy. I mean, I always look at the saints, including the martyrs, their peace and joy, even if when they were facing torture and death, they did so with hope, with courage. And that's because the Holy Spirit strengthened them. So anyhow, I think that's a, a beautiful reading. And I, I do talk about, you know, they all choose confirmation 
saints. They all choose saints for their confirmation names. And I kind of use them as examples of how they open themselves to God's grace and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So they were men and women and children of hope. Mm. The love of God is poured out by the Holy Spirit into our hearts, just like it was poured out into the hearts of the saints when they walked on this earth. So we have this love of God in our hearts. Then I really kind of say to the young people, but we need to let that out. We need to let that love of God overflow to others and to share it. Not being lazy and apathetic Christians that were disciples of Jesus who, who are to be missionaries, disciples, to live and practice the faith. And then I use the idea of, of fire, you know, how the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles in the form of tongues of fire. That represents God's love, the warmth, you know. So God calls us to spread the fire of his love, the fire lit by Christ in the world through the Holy Spirit. And I say that's why it's important to pray, because when we pray, we let that, that love of God, that fire envelop us. And then we go forth with the fire of love to serve others, mm-hmm. you know, especially the poor, the sick, the suffering. I mean, that's what the saints did. That's what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Holy Spirit empowers us to do. So that's kind of in a nutshell what, how I'm uh, approaching this year's um, confirmation homily. Um, it's, it's something I enjoy as bishop and uh, always gives me hope also to see these young people who've chosen to follow Christ and um, just, you know, gives me hope for the future of the church. When I was doing campus ministry and youth ministry down at Purdue, we would every once in a while get students, college students that hadn't been confirmed and they would go through confirmation prep and, and join in. For somebody that didn't get confirmed, uh, maybe they didn't feel like they were ready or parents discouraged it or for whatever reason, why would you suggest a young adult or an adult look into confirmation? Oh, I, and you know, there are a number. I, I often at confirmations that I have, there'll be a couple adults, young adults or older people too, mm-hmm. who've never been confirmed. And then every year I also do adult confirmations, a special mass, both in the cathedral in Fort Wayne and the cathedral in South Bend for adults mm-hmm. who haven't been confirmed. And I really, I mean, first of all, it's a sacrament of initiation. So we all should receive the three sacraments of initiation and not to have uh, one of them, most particularly confirmation in this situation, leave something lacking, mm-hmm. you know, because there is actual grace given. There's this... Um, this strength that we receive from the very beginning of the church. At the very beginning, they confirmed right after baptizing usually. Mm-hmm. So I, I encourage anyone that I meet, a young adult for whatever reason, or an adult was never confirmed to to see their priest, you know, receive the preparation, which doesn't have to be a lot. I mean, if they're if they know their faith pretty well, I mean, if they don't, they might want to be part of the RCIA before they're confirmed, but to realize that this is a special gift that the Lord gives us, and we don't want to say no to that gift or neglect opening ourselves to receive this 
this free gift. Yeah. Well, I don't really have a, a transition for this, but there was an issue that's kind of been popping up in the news over the past month or so. And we've briefly talked about death penalty in the past. That was in response to a listener's submitted question, I think around two years ago. So since it's been in the news lately, I thought maybe we could spend a little bit more time talking about it and maybe you could share a little bit of your thoughts on the current events. Last month, the governor of Virginia ended the death penalty in that state, uh, but also kind of contradicts some of the other things that are happening in Virginia regarding the life of unborn children. So I thought maybe you could reflect a little bit on, on what's happening there and, and the church's stance on this. Sure. I mean, it was very good news to hear of the um, end of the death penalty in Virginia. I think it's the first Southern state. I think it's what maybe half of U.S. states now have done away with the death penalty. But I think Virginia is the first Southern state. Anyhow, the two bishops of in Virginia, the Bishop of Richmond and the Bishop of Arlington, were very much a part of encouraging the abolition of the death penalty there. And, mm -hmm. and uh, they put out a statement after the government ended the death penalty in Virginia, which I thought was very well done, very well written. And of course, this is part of our faith. Um, I mean, we're called to build a culture of life. Mm -hmm. And the churches teach you, and this is clear, you can see in the catechism. This actually was tweaked a little bit in 2018 when Pope Francis changed a little bit of the wording. I think right. we've talked about that maybe in the past a little bit. Yeah, there was a change in the catechism, like you said, in 2018. Not a big change, but it was, it was a change that if you look at the... By the way, this part of the catechism, it comes under the... The section on the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Mm -hmm. And specifically, the death penalty is treated under the part where it talks about legitimate defense. So in the catechism prior to Pope Francis's changing it a bit, Pope John Paul had really taught about how the traditional teaching of the church didn't exclude recourse to the death penalty if it was the only possible way mm -hmm. of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor. And John Paul had said that nowadays the state has other ways to prevent crime, that you know, a person can be imprisoned, incapable of doing other harm. And he said the the cases in which the execution of the offender is a necessity, he said, they're very rare, if not practically non-existent. Right. So that was John Paul's teaching. And Pope Francis in 2018 went a step further and said basically that capital punishment is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person. And Pope Francis said it's inadmissible in all cases. Mm -hmm. So really now it's an unambiguous statement opposing capital punishment. Could we look at this as the difference between self-defense and a punishment or retribution that it was being allowed in the case of basically self-defense if there was right. no other way to protect yourself or the community from the aggressor, like you said, versus the way we use it today is as a punishment right. or as retribution or revenge right. or something. I think you're exactly right. And as John Paul judged, it was practically 
non-existent mm-hmm. cases where you needed it for self-defense. But but that doesn't even... Um, well, let me give you the revision. I think that might be helpful, where now Pope Francis is basically saying there's never a, a situation now where it's legitimate. He wrote, and this is now number 2267, if people want to look it up in the Catechism, 2297. He wrote, Recourse to the death penalty on the part of legitimate authority following a fair trial was long considered an appropriate response to the gravity of certain crimes and an acceptable, albeit extreme, means of safeguarding the common good. Mm-hmm. You were, as you were just saying, you know, self-defense. Then now the catechism says, today, however, there is an increasing awareness that the dignity of the person is not lost even after the commission of very serious crimes. In addition, a new understanding has emerged of the significance of penal sanctions imposed by the state. Lastly, more effective systems of detention have been developed, which ensure the due protection of citizens, but at the same time do not definitively deprive the guilty of the possibility of redemption. Consequently, the church teaches in light of the gospel that the death penalty is inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person, and she works with determination for its abolition worldwide. So in the former edition of the Catechism, it didn't say anything about working for the abolition, so that was added by by Pope Francis, but also says, you know, it's inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person. Mm-hmm. So I think it's even more um, unambiguous now. So there's really been a development of the teaching. And then kind of getting back to the Virginia situation. So even though the governor has ended the death penalty, seems like they're also expanding abortion rights. I think it was 2019, they were even encouraging that if a child survived an abortion, that there be basically options of continuing the abortion after the birth versus yeah. you know, doing whatever not you giving, can to save the life. Right, not yeah. giving the necessary care to the, right. to, the, to the baby. That was horrendous. When the governor said that, of course... The Catholic Church, the bishops, you know, really, and others spoke out very strongly against that. So it really is kind of an incoherent uh, principle. I mean, we have a consistent ethic of life in Mm -hmm. the Catholic Church. So the opposition to the death penalty and opposition to abortion, um, the killing of innocent human life in the womb, our teaching is, is coherent, it's consistent, but I'd say with the governor of Virginia, it's, it's not, it's not consistent. This idea of reproductive freedom or whatever that he uses to justify abortion just doesn't uh, cut it. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's contradictory. Mm -hmm. And we see this a lot, I think on either version of it, either people that defend the life of the unborn and are against abortion, but pro death penalty or vice versa, people that are opposed the death penalty but are okay with abortion. 
Why do you think there is that inconsistency for some that they have a hard time seeing that consistent life ethic? I think part of it is, you know, people are formed in a lot of ways by political mm -hmm. parties and political things rather than by the gospel mm -hmm. that, you know, people are influenced as they hear those who are, for example, proponents of capital punishment. And they kind of get swayed by their arguments and they favor the death penalty. Mm -hmm. But that's not how our opinion should be, should be made. It should be looking at the gospel, looking at the teachings of the church, including the catechism. And then kind of looking more locally, uh, Terre Haute, I believe, is where yeah. the death penalty is, is happening in our state. And I read that there were 22 people executed there last year, which mm -hmm. just kind of blew me away. I was kind of curious if there's any outreach from our diocese to either those that are on death row or politically to, to change that here in Indiana. Yeah. Well, you know, when federal executions uh, resumed a couple years ago, the bishops of the United States and bishops of Indiana, we were all, you know, spoke out strongly against this. Mm -hmm. And of course, most of those executions are taking place, as you mentioned, in Terre Haute, which is in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. So okay. the outreach there, especially including to the death row inmates, is, is by prison ministry of the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Now, we bishops in Indiana, the other dioceses too, we all did have a joint statement supporting Archbishop Thompson's statement against the federal executions taking place at Terre Haute. But the ministry to those people is being provided by the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Here in our diocese, we have, uh, we don't obviously have people on death row, but we do have jail ministry in our county jails. Some counties, we have more of a Catholic presence and mm -hmm. ministry in the jails than in others. Uh, there's some Catholic lay groups that are active in, in jail ministry, and some of our priests are active in jail ministry. A few of the jails do have regular celebration of Mass. I've been really pushing that. And uh, on the diocesan level, we have Allison Sturm kind of oversees okay. the ministry in the different county jails. But as far as um, people from our diocese involved in any kind of ministry or outreach at Terre Haute, no, that's the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Is there a need for more people locally to, yeah, to participate in that? I think so. And I know it's, yeah, I mean, we have, for example, I know of, of groups from some parishes, Catholic groups who are doing ministry with Allen County Jail mm -hmm. or St. Joseph County Jail, Elkhart County Jail. But it is uneven, I would say. Mm -hmm. I think there's more going on in certain county jails, Catholic-wise, than others. And I just kind of keep encouraging it. Some of our permanent deacons are doing good jail ministry. Deacon Greg Garrett was very active before his retirement at St. Joseph County Jail. And now Deacon Christian Nieves uh, from St. John's Parish in Goshen, I think on a weekly basis, uh, visits you know, prisoners or inmates at um, Elkhart County Jail. And then there are lay people who are involved in like Bible study and things like that in the mm -hmm. jails. I know in Allen County, I think, providing certain things like books and socks or underwear or whatever. Yeah. Um, but Allison would know 
you know, kind of what's going on at every every jail. And is there any kind of training that would be available for that? We've had some training. Uh, I imagine that I isn't remember, something you just like yeah. knock on the door and be like, I'm here. You know? yeah. Well, in Warsaw, we had some training a couple of years ago and a lot of people came. There was a lot of interest and also helping when inmates are released. Um, sure, you know, you know yeah. there is a high recidivism rate sometimes. So, so they need some accompaniment afterwards. And mm -hmm. that's been part of the ministry of some of our Catholic groups. I mean, you could check people, if they're interested in it, can contact Allison or they could check with their parish priest to see what's happening in their county. Okay. You know, this was part of my ministry as a priest. Um, hmm. So it's important to me. I would have mass every week in the county jail. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, and the people, I mean, the inmates really, really appreciated it. One thing I have to admit, though, here in, in Indiana, it's been, it's it's harder to get the clearances. I mean. Probably especially with COVID. They yeah, it really got, well, especially with COVID. Yeah. But even before COVID, I found, you know, some places it was, like we've had to fight to have masks. Some places yeah. said, well, we allow no wine. Mm -hmm. You know, I said, well, it's just a little, it's just, you know, very, very small amount for, that only the priests needs to, to drink at mass. Right. So I've had to fight for that in a few places because that becomes a matter of religious liberty. Yeah. So it is a little tough here. Uh, and some of it depends on who the warden is. Sure. But, you know, sometimes you, we really have to, to kind of fight for our, our rights to be able to minister mm -hmm. uh, to inmates. I was thinking it, a lot of this comes from Matthew 25 when Jesus said, whenever you visit those in prison, you're visiting me. Right. You know, and, and that was what we're encouraged to do. I was kind of wondering if things were different back then. Uh, were the the people that they were visiting in prison, would these have been other Jews that they're visiting? Are they trying to evangelize to non-Jews, to the Gentiles? Uh, are, is it people that are being persecuted, Jews that were in prison? Because especially uh, you know, with St. Paul and, and that, uh, you hear a lot about the early Christians going to jail. So I, I guess, is, is it That's similar a, to what our yeah. situation today or is it different? I don't know. I'd have to, I haven't read about that, Kyle. Like, I remember when I was a student in Rome visiting the, the you know, what was the jail where Peter and Paul, uh -huh. Mamertine prison, where they were kept. But whether they allowed visitors and all that, that's a good question. I don't, I have no idea. I don't know if we have historical sure. uh, records of, of how that was taking place. That raises a very interesting question, though. All right. Well, if people are interested, best thing to call the diocese and ask for Allison Sturm, and she can direct you to that. Or like you said, you know, maybe your local priest would know what's happening yeah. in your particular area. All right. If anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line, which is 260-436-9598. And we will talk about National Infertility Awareness Week and more coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. 
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And on April 18th, we begin National Infertility Awareness Week, runs through April 24th. thought maybe we can talk a little bit about this as, a, as something that many couples struggle with and uh, that, you know, that whole idea of awareness is, you know, how can we support those that are struggling with it? And for those that are struggling, what kind of resources are out there? Uh, I was reading one in eight couples experience infertility. And that, that number seems like a very high number. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know it was that high. I mean, I know I, I've met many couples who are struggling with uh, infertility, but I didn't know the statistic. Thanks for sharing that. So I guess what should somebody think when, whenever we talk about, especially this might be especially difficult for Catholics because we talk about being open to life so much and the joy and the blessing that children are as a family, then if you're unable to have kids, especially if that's what you've you know always envisioned and dreamed of, having a large, quote, large Catholic family, and then you find that you're infertile or you have a couple kids and then aren't able to have any more or whatever, what should a Catholic couple think of this? I, I mean, be upset with God that why are you doing uh, this to me? You know, what, what's... Well, I think it can be, you know, a, a great suffering for people who are hoping to have children and finding out that they're unable to, or, or couples I know of who've had multiple miscarriages mm -hmm. and uh, trying to to have a baby and not being able to. I mean, my heart goes out to them, and sometimes they may may feel a little bit isolated in in their uh, suffering. So it's important, I think that the church reach out to them and help them to carry that cross. We do have a ministry in the diocese called Hope for the Journey, mm -hmm. which offers spiritual, emotional, and practical support for couples who are experiencing infertility. So they can be able to open their hearts about the cross that they're carrying and and also to, to not lose hope, you know, that even if someone is not able to have children or a couple unable to have children, they still are called to be fruitful. And there are other ways to be fruitful. So I think that we can be a help that way. And I think spiritual, you know, to be able to to try to say, okay, then what is God calling us to do? Mm -hmm. You know, and some will be inspired to adopt or to to get involved in other ways where they can, you know, be in a sense, spiritual fathers and mothers. Mm. Um, and we're very blessed in our diocese to have local physicians who provide NAPRO technology, mm -hmm. natural procreative technology. It's a woman's health science that monitors and maintains a woman's reproductive and gynecological health. Health. So sometimes couples have been able, who are involved with NAPRO technology and receiving that assistance, sometimes are able to conceive. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that we, I'd say that we're so blessed in our diocese to have those trained in NAPRO technology. There's also a, uh, a group ministry that has started in the diocese, didn't start in the diocese, started elsewhere, but now we have... Um, involvement by our diocese. It's called Springs in the Desert. Mm -hmm. And uh, Stacy Hunick, who is the director of youth and young adult ministry at St. Charles Parish in Fort Wayne, she met with me to 
tell me about Springs in the Desert. And that's basically, it's, it's dedicated to accompanying those struggling with infertility, spiritually and emotionally, to accompany them because of the, you know, the emotional and spiritual effect that this can have on people and their relationships. Mm-hmm. It can be very challenging. So this is kind of a place of community where couples who are struggling with infertility can come together and share their suffering and experience a transformation of that suffering into fruitfulness. So that's a very beautiful ministry. So I recommend um, anyone listening who is struggling with infertility or knows someone struggling with infertility, you might want to look into springs in the desert as well as the diocesan hope for the journey so that there is this important spiritual and emotional accompaniment uh, for those who are struggling with this. And that hope for the journey can be found through the diocesan website. And then the springs in the desert, if people are looking for that is springs in the org, And they've got a podcast, they've got YouTube videos, they offer retreats. So people can check out the website there. There's actually a quote on the website that is kind of amazing. It's from St. Jose Maria Escriva said, God in his providence has two ways of blessing marriages, one by giving them children and the other, sometimes because he loves them so much by not giving them children. I don't know which is the better blessing. That quote, I thought maybe you could help us digest that a little bit. By suggesting that it could be a blessing to not have children, it almost sounds like he's saying that having children would be counter to a blessing, not a curse, but, you know, like, oh, you have children, that's a tough life to live, but people without children are blessed. I don't, I don't think that's what he meant. No, no. No, I think it's, it's, it's what we do with the situation. In other words, God is allowing this uh, infertility, so how can it be turned into a blessing is Mm -hmm. what I was talking about before is, you know, other ways of being fruitful. And, and, uh, I think for example, just to make it concrete, I had a great aunt and uncle, they lived in Bayonne, New Jersey. So my mom's aunt and uncle, uh, his name was Dennis and her name was Annie. I'd say one of the, the most joyful experiences of my childhood was when they would visit. And they would come and visit for a few weeks at a time. They had no children, so Uh they could come. We loved them so much. They loved us. And, you know, I still look back as that's one of the greatest joys of my life were the experience. I remember as a kid crying when they would leave. Yeah, They were so (laughs) loving, so giving, so much fun. They showed us so much love. And I thought, think to myself, they just came to mind as we were talking, that that I think is is how much they were a blessing in not just my life or my brother and sister, but also some of my cousins. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all loved them because they just overflowed with goodness mm-hmm. towards us. So they, they're, even though they were unable to have children, they were a great blessing to so many. And I think they experienced, too, life as a joy because of that. I'm sure, I don't remember them ever talking about their inability to have children. Um, But the fact is they had a lot of spiritual children Mm. in their nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews. And I even see that in my own life as a celibate, you know, 
how much joy I have, not only in being a spiritual father as a priest and a bishop, but even in the life of my nephew and nieces, you know, there's a closeness there and there's a certain, there's a fruitfulness there too. Mm -hmm. So, so I think there is, um, you know, the spiritual and emotional part of it is uh, a struggle, especially at the beginning, but it can end up being a source of blessing, I think. And maybe this is a, a topic for another episode, but that idea of spiritual motherhood and spiritual fatherhood, can you break that down for us briefly? Uh, I mean, we're all called to be spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers. So even if we don't have biological children, you mentioned as a priest, right. you're a spiritual father. But what, what does that mean practically? Yeah, I think there's different ways. I mean, theologically, you can look at, well, a priest, when I baptize, you know, there's mm -hmm. spiritual regeneration. You know, children become adopted sons and daughters of God. So there's a, you know, a generative dimension to the uh, priesthood. But you're asking for more practical things. I think also just that very human part of things, like being a part of the lives of my nephew and nieces, mm -hmm. you know, and how by giving of myself to them, by uh, teaching them, mm -hmm. by showing them love, by being a good uncle, by being generous to them. And I don't mean just with material things, uh, generous with my time with them. Right. You know, I, one of my greatest things I really enjoyed was taking each of them to World Youth Days um, mm. with the groups in the diocese, you know. Um, there I was a spiritual father to the, hopefully to the, the young people of our diocese, but then I brought my nieces and nephew along to different ones. And, um, you know, and I paid for them to come. So that was also fine, you know, being generous. Uh -huh. But um, I think they're just different ways. And, and some of it is just uh, comes naturally, I think. I don't know that I'm consciously thinking to myself, oh, I'm working, I'm being a spiritual father to my nephew uh -huh. and nieces. No, it, I don't think I think of it that way. Uh, but that's really what it is. I think of godparents too. Right. You know, godparents can do that. And, and for example, when I think of couples struggling for with infertility, if they don't have nieces or nephews, maybe they have godchildren. Mm -hmm. So they can be an important part of their life. They don't replace the parents, but they complement the relationship and especially in the spiritual part. Right. So I think that's another very practical way of being a spiritual father, spiritual mother and uh, trying to nurture their faith in ways that um, that we can think about. So do your nieces and nephews call you Uncle Bishop or Bishop My Uncle? My one niece or? used to call me Uncle Bishop when she was a little <laughs> small. Now they just call me Uncle Kevin, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. One other thing before we go. Last week, you blessed a statue and a plaza. Can you tell us about that? Yes, that was in Donaldson at the Mother House of the Poor Handmaids of Jesus Christ. It was a statue of St. Katharina Casper, and where the statue is, there's a plaza dedicated to her. Very nice, very beautiful. And, um, you know, we celebrate her feast day in our diocese on February 1st as an optional memorial because of the historic connection mm -hmm. to our diocese. You know, she was just canonized a few years ago by Pope Francis, um, I think it was, I'm trying to think of what year it was, was. It 2018. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it'll, it'll be three years in October. And a lot of people still don't know a lot about her. She was German. 
She was the foundress of the Poor Handmaids of Jesus Christ, a religious community that has really been so important in the history of our diocese very early on. After the Civil War, when we had all this immigration from Germany, the bishop asked for uh, Mother Maria Katarina Kasper to send sisters to minister to the Germans here. This was mid-19th century. And uh, Mother Katarina did, and they came to St. Joseph in Hessen Castle. That's where they began. But they were only here a year, and they founded the first hospital in Fort Wayne, St. Joseph Hospital. Hmm. That was in 1869. So it began with these eight poor handmaids uh, that came by boat from uh, Germany. Well, from France. They had to go through to France. Got to New York and then came all the way to Indiana. And they took care of ministered at the parish there. They ran a school, nursed the sick. And uh, so really, it's a very important part of our diocesan history. And the mother house for the U.S. branch of the poor handmaids is in our diocese in Donaldson. They have Ancilla College there. Mm -hmm. They have a beautiful chapel. I think if you had never been there, um, uh, Ancilla Domini Chapel, which means handmaid of the Lord, very beautiful. But back to St. Katharina Casper, she was, um, she grew up quite poor. She was devout as a child. She liked to read the Bible, liked to read The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis as <laughs> she was growing up. But since the family was poor, she worked out in the fields, did other kinds of work, but she was very devout. So even from a young age, she felt this call to be a religious, to consecrate her life to God. And when, then her father died and one of her brothers died and they were really having a difficult time economically. So she really wasn't free to pursue her call to the religious life because she needed to help with the family at home. She needed to help her mother. Then her mother died and she was then able to pursue, but she didn't join a, a religious order. She, um, started by just getting uh, other women together in her own little house in Dernbach, Germany. And <laughs> this group of, of women were serving, nursing children and the sick in the village. When they came together to live together, it was just, that's, that's just how it, it began as a, this charitable group, but women of great faith and prayer. Mother Katharina organized it more and actually then it became a religious congregation. Of course, she needed the, the bishop's permission to do this, and he received their vows, gave them permission. Uh, so the poor handmaids of Jesus Christ were established in 1851. And uh, at that point, she took the name Maria. So she's Maria Katarina Casper. And then the congregation grew rapidly. It was amazing. And this is the same time, I mean, this is during the Kulturkampf and persecution of the church. And there were other religious congregations in Germany like that are here in our diocese that also, I mean, that was an amazing time. I don't know how these women did it. And uh, so they opened a school and took care of the sick. And then, as I said, the order spread to the United States in 1868 and was became a very important part of the history of our diocese, staffing schools and hospitals, especially St. Joseph Hospital in Fort Wayne, but also a hospital in Mishawaka, and we're very blessed. So, uh, so I, anyhow, it was it was great to uh, to bless that statue in Donaldson. Is she the patron saint of anything in particular? Not that I no, I don't. I'd have to ask the sisters. I haven't heard of that. I mean, she's such a recent saint. Yeah. I don't know. 
but I could think of her being, I mean, I, you know, what makes her a saint? It wasn't just that they established, they, that they served the sick mm -hmm. and that they, uh, you know, educated children and served the German immigrants, et cetera. They brought God's love to the poor and to the sick. That right. was her mission. And she had a deep spiritual life. So you read her writings and all that, and you see this is a woman who was very close to God. And of course, the, determined, the church uh, determined that she lived a life of heroic virtue. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't, you know, it was heroic what she did. So that's why she's a saint. Yeah, just being a good person or doing good things right. does not necessarily make you a saint. All right, well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can send a text to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, can we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.